You're listening to a sermon from Midtown Presbyterian Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about Midtown and its ministry, please visit us at midtownpres.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Morning, friends. It's good to see you guys. Growing up, I always wanted to be like one person. Derek Jeter. Some of you thought I might say Jesus. Nope, Derek Jeter. That was the one person I wanted to be like. As soon as I had learned how to walk, I was obsessed with baseball. I was watching it on TV. I was playing it at home. And Jeter, for those of you that don't know, he was the iconic shortstop for the late 90s and early 2000s Yankees, some of the best teams in the history of baseball. He was the face of the sport. He was known around the world. And he was living the dream in my eyes. And because I grew up in Arizona, I'd only get to see Derek Jeter play every once in a while. Like every couple weeks, I'd catch a game on TV. And so when I did, I would stand right next to the TV and mimic everything he did in the game. Not exaggerating. I still, I did it so often, I still have his ritual memorized in my head. Derek Jeter, you ready for it? Derek Jeter. He would start in the on-deck circle. So those of you that, that's, that don't know, that's where you wait before it's your turn to go up to bat. He's usually on the first base side because that's where the Yankees dugout was. And in most away stadiums, that's actually where the away team's dugout is. So he's usually on the first base side. He's got his bat. He's getting a couple practice swings in. He usually has a weight on the end of his bat because if you swing with a weighted bat, it will make your normal swing feel a little bit smoother and faster. And then when it was his turn to bat, he'd knock the weight off and he'd always walk around the catcher and the umpire. Not in front of them, but around them. He'd walk to the other side. He'd have his bat in his left hand. He'd dig his feet in and he'd do this little number so the umpire knows he's got plenty of time. He says, you can't pitch yet. I'm still getting ready. And then he'd set the bat down on the inside part of the home plate. Not on the outside, not in the middle, right in the inside. He'd take a deep breath. And then he'd grab the bat with two hands. He'd do a couple of these bad boys, just kind of getting himself ready. (laughs) Getting himself ready. And then he'd draw some imaginary circles in the air with his bat. This was kind of how his stance went. Some imaginary circles, and he'd have a little toe tap. And then when that pitch came in, he'd do a couple of these, like a couple toe taps to brace himself. And then I even remember if the ball passed him, I know what he'd do. He'd compress his body down, and then he'd step outside of the batter's box. He'd tap his cleats a couple times. He'd set the bat on his leg. He'd adjust his batting gloves. He'd spit something on the ground sometimes. And then he'd step back in, bat on the inside of the plate. A couple more of these. A couple more of these. A couple more imaginary circles, getting himself ready. I loved mimicking Derek Jeter very clearly. Thank you for indulging me in that. Thanks. Oh, man. So fun. <laughs> now, did mimicking Derek Jeter's batting stance every once in a while in front of the TV make me into a baseball player like Derek Jeter? The answer is very clear. I'm pastoring a church in Phoenix, Arizona, not playing for the New York Yankees, right? I, I did not become Derek Jeter by doing that practice. But why not? Well, it's because I was looking for a shortcut to becoming like Derek Jeter. See, Derek Jeter, who I saw on TV, was far more than just the occasional game time moments that he came through. In fact, the person I saw on TV was just a small portion of his whole life. Jeter was who he was because of total comprehensive preparation. Years of habit building around diet and stretches and practice and rest and training. And so the great athlete that I loved and the great athlete that many people saw come through in some of the highest pressure moments in baseball Well, he became that sort of person because he was shaped in thousands of tiny private moments that no one ever saw, that none of us witnessed. 
And as a kid, I was just looking for a shortcut. I wanted a quick route to a life like Derek Jeter's. I wanted simple and easy. I didn't want the holistic formation that was required of me. And that principle is definitely true in my short-lived baseball career, but I think it's also true for many of us as we seek out the good life. We live in a shortcut culture today. Everything around us is telling us that we can get a life of meaning and of joy and of peace through rapid consumption or instant means. And our digital empire has conditioned us to think only in those terms, only in terms of speed. There was a recent interview I read with Forbes where they talked to digital marketing experts and they asked them, how many ads do you think on average the American person sees each day? How many ads do you think they see? And these experts estimated somewhere between 4,000 and 10,000 per day. That's what we see, we take in. And every single one of those ads are telling us that the good life is just one shortcut away. Drive this car, drink this drink, wear this perfume, use this laundry detergent, right? Whatever the thing is. Beautiful people tell us the beautiful lie that life comes fast and easy through rapid consumption of superficial goods. For just three easy payments of $19.99, you could have the life you're looking for. So we hear all the time. We're sold quick fix diets and workout plans that are spewed to us through fabricated social media accounts that are often rooted in unhealthy pictures of what it means to be human. And if we hear those messages 4,000 times a day, what do you think that's doing to our hearts and our minds? It's shaping us, it's forming us, it's actually changing our biology and our anatomy. There's a cultural commentator named Gore Vidal who called this our passion for the immediate and casual. And there's studies to back up that it's actually changing us. Over the last 25 years, the average human attention span has dropped from 12 seconds to 8 seconds in the last 25 years. Now, we don't have a point of comparison immediately in our minds, but I'll give you one. The average attention span for a goldfish is 9 seconds. We're losing the goldfish, people, in our culture. And that tendency has leaked into our spiritual lives. We are people who look for spiritual shortcuts all the time. Just give me one inspiring Bible verse. Give me the one piece of marital advice or some retreat that will solve my relationship or my life. Give me one inspiring or emotionally stirring music set or sermon. We live in a culture of shortcut Christianity. And think about it. It's in the language we use to one another. What are the two questions that most people ask when they leave a church service to evaluate whether that was worthwhile or not? Did I like the music? Did I like the charismatic speaker? Those are two things that we often ask in our culture. Translation, did their consumeristic production give me the short-term fix I was looking for, and could I come back again for that fix? Notice how the questions we often ask when we leave a church service aren't questions like, is this community going to shape me into a person of integrity in the long term? We don't ask, is this community holistically committed to loving God and loving their neighbors in every part of their lives? We don't ask those questions. Why? Because the value for church, of church for most of us is located in that church's ability to provide a short-term spiritual high. Because that's how we've been conditioned to think. That's how our whole culture works. You guys, we're never going to become like Derek Jeter through the shortcut of watching him every once in a while on TV. And we will never receive the full and free life that Jesus has promised us, that life of deep and abiding love and joy and peace by pursuing occasional spiritual shortcuts. We need to become people who are holistically integrated, who embrace the way of Jesus in the deepest parts of who we are and in every area of our lives. 
There's a pastor and theologian named Richard Foster who puts it this way in his book, Celebration of Discipline. He says, superficiality is the curse of our age. The doctrine of instant satisfaction is a primary spiritual problem. The desperate need today is not for a greater number of intelligent people or gifted people, but for deep people. We're continuing in our sermon series here at Midtown called The Transformed Life. And in this series, we're exploring 10 of the essential pillars of the Christian faith. We're walking through these together in our Sunday gatherings and in our community groups. And our hope is that this series and curriculum is going to teach each of us what it looks like, wherever we are in our spiritual journey, wherever we are in our season of life, what it looks like to receive the life of Jesus in the deepest parts of who we are and in every area of our lives. What it looks like to walk with Jesus in our vocation, in our work. What it looks like to walk with Jesus as we advocate for the poor and the marginalized. What it looks like to walk with Jesus in our prayer lives. We're exploring each of these topics together with the hope that well, we'd actually experience the transformation that Jesus promised. That is what he promised, transformation when we receive his way in our lives. In fact, that's exactly what the passage we're going to read today is talking about in John chapter 15. So friends, if you have a Bible, turn it with me to John. This is the fourth book in your New Testament, if you're flipping there. John chapter 15, we're going to be reading from verse 1 through verse 11. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. The word's going to be behind me on the screen, so you can follow along there. Also, if you don't have a Bible, let me know, and I'll get you one for free. It's on us. Free books. We're all about it here at Midtown. You can get a free book. John chapter 15, starting in verse 1. I, this is Jesus speaking, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine grower. He removes every branch in me that bears no fruit. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes to make it bear more fruit. And you've already been cleansed by the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me, as I abide in you. Just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit, because apart from me, you can do nothing. Whoever does not abide in me is thrown away like a branch and withers. Such branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. But if you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask for whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and become my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. I have said these things to you, so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be complete. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you knew that you were going to die tomorrow, what would you say at dinner tonight to some of your closest friends or family? What would you talk about? The weather, probably, right? Yeah. All this rain in Phoenix, how amazing. No, we wouldn't talk about that. We would save the most important, the most crucial things that we wanted our friends to know. We would spend our time investing in those sorts of conversations. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing in this passage here. John chapter 15 is part of a larger section of scripture that scholars have started to refer to as the upper room discourse. At this moment in the story, Jesus is eating a meal with his closest friends to celebrate Passover. It was a Jewish festival that commemorated God's liberation of the Jewish people from slavery in Egypt. It's a reminder of God's liberating power. And he's eating a meal to celebrate that with them. 
And this is happening the day before he's to go to the cross. He knows that in the next 24 hours, he will be brutally tortured and killed. And so he is sharing the most important things that his disciples need to hear in this moment. It very much is similar. For the Jewish people, it was this sense of what God had done for the people. It was amazing. It was this amazing celebration that Jesus is going through with his disciples. And in the middle of that celebration, in the middle of that conversation, did you notice the word that Jesus kept saying over and over? Abide. Abide in me as I abide in you. Abide in me because apart from me you can do nothing. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit. Abide in my love. Jesus seems intent on hammering home that word. In these 11 verses we read, Jesus uses it 10 times. And so on his last night, when he has the chance to say whatever he wants, he says the most important thing is to remind these people that they need to abide in me. And that word is used all over the Gospel of John in different forms. It can mean to dwell, to remain, to continue to be present with, to continue in relationship with, to endure, to wait to accept, to suffer for, to submit to, to act in accordance with, to be faithful to. It's this comprehensive picture of what it means to be as near to something and in something as possible. And so when Jesus uses this word, he's telling us that true life is found in being the sorts of people whose entire beings, whose entire lives are oriented towards receiving his love and abiding in his love. That's the foundational reality that guides all of the Christian life. On his final night, Jesus is telling us that true life comes in making our entire home in God. I have a friend who's a pastor. His name's Rich, and he uses a helpful example to describe what this looks like. Rich is a big tea drinker, loves tea. And he's realized in his time of drinking tea that there's two types of tea drinkers in the world. First type of tea drinker is the dipper. These folks, they get their hot cup of tea together and they grab their tea bag and then they dip it in and then dip it out. They dip it in and they dip it out. We got some dippers in here? We can be honest, it's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got some dippers. Now, dippers of tea do this because they're remaining in control of the strength of the tea. They're the ones that are actually controlling all of the activity. They're deciding how strong their tea is. It's their activity that dictates the process. And oftentimes, our spiritual lives are kind of like this. We dip into prayer, and we dip out of prayer. We dip into church once every four weeks. I don't know. I'm not calling anybody out. I'm just saying. Dip into church and dip out of church. We dip in and we dip out. We dip into Jesus stuff and we dip out. We're Christian dippers. <laughs> but there's another group of tea drinkers, the dwellers. And these folks just leave the tea bag in there. Like, I'm just going to let that soak I'm going to let it sit in the water. I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to let the water and the tea do its thing. There's no activity on my part. They're not controlling the strength. The water just soaks it up. And the longer you leave the tea bag in there, the stronger it gets. Isn't that amazing? That'll preach. The more time we dwell, the stronger our tea becomes. Jesus is telling us in this passage that we're to be dwellers, friends. We're to make our home in God, to abide with God. And the more we allow him to shape our activity, the stronger we're going to find ourselves. The more like Jesus we're going to find ourselves. Our role is not in our own initiative or activity. It's simply to sit back and abide, to dwell with God and allow God to do his work in and through us. 
And notice what Jesus says will happen when we do this. In verse 5, he says, Those who abide in him and he in them will bear much fruit. Notice he doesn't say might bear much fruit. He doesn't say could bear much fruit. He says abiding in him will produce fruit. And he goes on in the chapter to mention that that fruit is going to look like love and joy and peace. That's the sort of fruit that we produce in our lives. And so according to Jesus, the spiritual life is actually remarkably simple. Just move from being a dipper to a dweller. And when that happens, amazing change will come into our lives. When we make our home in God, it's going to start to transform us. When we make our home in God, we start forgiving the people we hate. When we make our home in God, we start praying for the people that we can't stand. When we make our home in God, we become people who are joyful and loving and peaceful in a world that is mired by ignorance and indifference and oppression and pain. John Ortberg put it this way. He said, the good news as Jesus preached it is that it's now possible for ordinary men and women, you and I, to live in the presence and under the power of God. It's not about the minimal entrance requirements for getting into heaven when you die. It's about the glorious redemption of your human life, your life. And if you're like me, somebody who thinks pretty practically, this all sounds great, but it also kind of feels up in the air. What does it mean to make my home in God, right? That sounds like nice spiritual language. What does that actually mean? How do I become someone who abides in Jesus and who opens up space for Jesus to abide in me? We're not the first practical people in the history of the church, by the way. So we actually learn how people have done this throughout history. We're not the first ones to ask how. It's been asked for millennia, all the way back to the earliest followers of Jesus, and they had a simple answer. Spiritual disciplines. These are intentional practices that we cultivate in our lives in order to abide, to make our home in God. And I know that when we hear that word discipline in our culture, it sometimes can feel a little intimidating, it can rub us the wrong way. Because the way we often hear it used is when like, a parent disciplines their child, it feels like punishment or retribution. That's actually not the heart of the spiritual disciplines. It's actually way more robust and helpful than that. So what I want to do for the rest of our time this morning, and then in your groups, you're going to go through this week in disciplines, our hope is to provide some clarity on what the disciplines are and aren't, and then how we can best integrate them, how we can best bring them into our lives. So that's what we're going to do for the rest of the morning. With me? First, let's talk about what the spiritual disciplines are and aren't. Number one, the spiritual disciplines are freeing structures for the good, not restrictive punishments. The word discipline actually comes from a Latin root, which literally means instruction or knowledge. It's the same root in the word disciple. Disciple is a learner or a student, apprentice. The idea is that disciplines instruct us. They teach us. They guide us. They're structures that are leading us towards growth and development. And there are a whole bunch of these sorts of disciplines you can find throughout church history, just so you get an idea of what these actually look like. Many people split them up into three different categories. You've got uh, personal disciplines, you've got peripheral disciplines, and you've got collective disciplines. So we've actually got them up here for you. Personal disciplines, these are more inward focused. They're things like meditation, like what we practiced earlier that Elizabeth led us in. Prayer, fasting, studying scripture, etc. Inward facing. And then you've got peripheral disciplines. These are more outward facing, more activities that we go and do, things like solitude. Service, what we're going to practice together on February 5th. Simplicity, living life simply and stripping yourself of all the extra things that might be gods or idols in your life. And Sabbath, intentional time set aside to rest from the hurry of the world. And then there's collective disciplines. These are things that we we do together as a body of believers. None of us is an island unto ourselves. And so we confess together. We do corporate worship like we are right now. We celebrate together like we're going to do at the Super Bowl party. It's going to be a rager. You don't want to miss it. 
Sports. Jordan's a big sports ball guy. And you'll notice these disciplines here are actually detailed in the transformed life all over the place. So as you go through the curriculum with your groups, you'll see these. You'll actually get some tips on how to implement them. And so for followers of Jesus, who are disciples, right, learners, students, these disciplines provide us instruction and structure that enable growth in the good, not restriction or shame that hinder that growth. And that picture, disciplines providing structure for healthy growth, it actually fits exactly the metaphor that Jesus is using here. He refers to himself as a vine and us as the branches. And anyone in an agrarian or agricultural society like Jesus's would know that the health of the branch is dependent upon the structured nature of its connection to the vine. If you rip off a branch from the vine and throw it on the ground, is that thing going to produce fruit? No, because it's disconnected from the source of life. Branches, apart from the structure of the vine, have no ability to produce life on their own. And so disconnecting from the source of life disconnects one from life. And so that means that submitting ourselves to structures like disciplines, abiding in Jesus actually produces freedom in us, not restriction. It frees us to connection to the source of life and joy and peace because that's where we're abiding. That's where we're spending our time. And I think this notion is really important for us today because we live in a culture that will tell us that the real path to health is uninhibited freedom. Do whatever you want, however you want, whenever you want. That is the way to health. We say things like, you do you, right? Follow your heart. Be true to yourself. Don't let anyone tell you how to be. Don't let anyone impose structures on you. Our culture celebrates the notion that true freedom comes when we pursue all of the options available to us. And if you stop me from pursuing one of those options, well, then you're restricting me from life. But here's the truth, friends. That sort of freedom complete, uninhibited freedom, it actually produces the opposite of life in us. It produces anxiety in us. Notice how we are living in a culture right now that maybe is more free than we've ever been. And what are we also? More anxious, more depressed, more lonely, more isolated than we've ever been. It's remarkable. It's the nature of the human condition. Too much freedom will skyrocket our anxiety. And if you want to test this out in real time right now, go to one place, Cheesecake Factory. You guys been there? Have you opened the menus at Cheesecake Factory? There's like pages of advertisements first with huge pictures of food that are like way too close to the food. (laughs) Kind of weird. And then it's like page after, it's a textbook of menu items. Cheesecake Factory has more than 250 entrees on their menu. Just entrees, not even cheesecake. Just entrees. And they expect the waiter who shows up five minutes later to get your order. You're like, hold on, man. Right? I'm not ready yet. This menu is producing anxiety in me. I don't know what to pick. That's why Soren Kierkegaard brilliantly quipped, anxiety is the dizziness of freedom. Anxiety is the dizziness of freedom. And by the way, it's worth noting that on the other end of the spectrum, too much structure can suffocate us. We've learned that throughout history as well. When we're too structured, when we're too pinned down, it can suffocate us. But too much freedom will produce anxiety in us. We need something in between. We need a structure that will actually lead us to the freedom that our hearts and souls are looking for. And Jesus says that we find that in him. A former chaplain at the University of Harvard, his name's Elton Trueblood, he put it this way. He said, in the conducts of one's own life, it is soon obvious, as many have learned the hard way, that empty freedom is a snare and a delusion. In following what comes naturally or easily, life simply ends in confusion and in consequent disaster. 
Without discipline of time, we spoil the next day the night before. We've done that before? Without the discipline of prayer, we're likely to end by having practically no experience of the divine human encounter. We're not very advanced in our spiritual lives if we have not encountered the basic paradox of freedom to the effect that we are most free when we are bound. But not just any way of being bound will suffice. What matters is the character of our binding. What matters is where you abide. What matters is where you dwell. And so disciplines, friends, they're freeing structures for us to abide in the source of love and joy and peace. They're not restrictive, shame-filled punishments. Don't go to the disciplines out of shame. Go there because you know that life is found there. That's the first thing we learn about disciplines. Second thing we learn about the disciplines. They orient us outward, not just inward. That's crucially important. Notice that fruit is born by the branches in this passage, but the branches aren't eating the fruit. The branches are producing fruit for others. That's the idea here. And that's the remarkable thing about the Christian life and spiritual disciplines. We're getting connected to God so that we can become channels of God's love to the world around us. So we become people who produce fruit to others, justice and peace and grace. That's actually the whole point of Christianity. We're never called to get out of the world in our prayer time. We're called to uh, escape the chaos of the world, allow God to define us, and then get right back in to the world, extend ourselves to others. That's precisely why Jesus emphasizes the most important commandment in the way that he does. You guys remember the most important commandment that Jesus says? Love God, and not just love God, but love God with every part of you. Dwell, abide. Love God with everything in you, and then love your neighbor as yourself. Those two things are connected in Jesus' mind. You can't have one without the other. The most important commandment is two-pronged. Friends, if we say we love God and then harbor resentment towards our neighbor, then we haven't actually loved God. It hasn't happened. Love of God without love of neighbor isn't love of God. It's love of self masquerading using religious language. And so if we say we love God, that means we also love all of the image bearers of God around us. We love all the things that God loves. So abiding with God in the disciplines, it doesn't just send us inward into ourselves, it sends us outward to the world. Third thing that the disciplines do, they're guiding things, not extra things. Notice in this passage that part of being connected to the vine is producing fruit, but it also is being pruned. Do you notice that? If you're connected to the vine, you're also getting pruned. Abiding in Jesus means that we have some of the unhealthy practices or priorities in our lives revealed and then replaced with healthier ones. That's the idea. And so spiritual disciplines are designed to help us do that. As we embrace spiritual disciplines, we don't want them to think of them as extra things heaped onto our already over-busy lives. Because that's how they can feel. When we list out all these things, we're like, oh man, i got to be doing this and this and this and this. They're not extra things. They're guiding things. And they're supposed to help integrate into our own lives and help us identify what might need to be removed. Because here's the truth, friends. You already have disciplines in your lives. They already exist. You may not have named them, but they're already there. And those disciplines are already shaping you. They're shaping me. They're shaping all of us. What we do in our lives does something to us. And so the question isn't, do I have time to build disciplines in? The question is, what disciplines are already built into my life, and how are they forming me? What branches already exist in my life, and how are they shaping me? Are they bearing fruit of love and joy and peace, or are they dead branches? Are they leading me to death or decay? And each of us, by the way, has to answer those questions for ourselves. I can't answer those for you. You know your practices, and you can answer them for me. I have to address them in my own life. But we need to remember that Everything we're doing is constantly shaping us. 
as many great philosophers have said throughout the years, first we make our choices, and then our choices make us. They shape us. So that's what the disciplines are and aren't. They're freeing, not restrictive. They're orienting us outward, not just inward. And they're guiding things, not extra things. But the reality still remains. Okay, great, but how do I bring that big list of things into my normal everyday life? Because it does still feel like a little much. Clint, you wrote 250 pages in the curriculum. Like, it seems a lot, right? So how do I start to integrate this? Well, we've got some uh, tips for you here. A first tip with integrating the spiritual disciplines in your life. Start where you are, not where you think you ought to be. If you're anything like me, Enneagram 3 here, if you're anything like me, you're going to think, great, let's get it. All of them right now, just, just inject me with disciplines, right? All the things right now. You guys, as far as I know, no one in this room is a monk or a nun. Cool. Okay. I didn't want to, I didn't know, but no one in this room is a monk or a nun, which means start where you are. If you're not someone who prays at all during the day right now, don't jump into 24 hours straight of intercessory prayer sitting on your rooftop. Like that's not going to be the move for you. If you do try that, I'm interested in hearing about it, but I would start where you are. Start with meaningful goals that can push you, certainly, but not break you right away. An example, how many of you sleep uh, with your phone next to your bed every night? Be honest, it's okay. Yeah, there's a lot of hands, it's okay. 95% of millennials and Gen Zers sleep with their phone by their bed, and the first thing and last thing they see is something on their device. Friends, one of the most radical disciplines you can make this week is just to not do that. Put your phone to bed before you go to bed. Plug it outside of your room and get an old school alarm clock. I looked them up on Amazon. There's no excuse. 10 bucks. If you need 10 bucks, I can get you 10 bucks. Get an old school alarm clock and leave your phone outside of your bedroom. Set up the alarm clock and then we wake up in the morning. Before you look at your phone, set aside 10, 15 minutes. Sit on the edge of your bed or find a comfortable chair. Make your coffee if that's your thing or tea. If you're a dipper, dweller, whatever. It's not, it doesn't matter to me. Take a few deep breaths and then just pray a prayer of gratitude to God. Read Psalm 23, the psalm we read to start our time together. Contemplate the love of God for you. And what you'll find is that the more you do this, the more God's presence is going to be open up to you, the more that God will abide in you and you abide in him, and the more you're going to want to do it. That's the amazing thing about the disciplines. When you get connected to the source of life, you're like, I want more and more, and it starts to expand your capacity. Start small. We have resources for you in that curriculum. Start small. Start where you are. And remember your season of life, too. We have a, a variety of different seasons of life in this room. If you have kids right now, I know it can sound insane to think, well, I mean, I have three kids to deal with. How do I do this? Right? Well, build it around your kids' schedules. Wake up a little bit before your kids wake up, if that is how your schedule works. I know some parents who use their kids' cries or uh, speech as a sort of monastic bell. Hear me out. At a monastery, a bell rings every few hours to remind people to pray. So what if you made that your choice in your life? If your child's crying for you, just think, oh, how do I orient myself back to God's love? How do I extend God's love to my kid? Use it as a monastic bell. Many parents can feel like they're monks or nuns because they're isolated from the world and they're only with their kids, right? This is a great <laughs> practice for you. Integrate this into your life as it currently exists. Don't let it be a burden. Just fit it into your life. Allow it to shape you. I like how Eugene Peterson translates Romans 12 in his translation, The Message. He says, Romans in 12, 1 through 2, he says this. Here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday, 
ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit in without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings out the best in you, develops well-formed maturity in you. So that's tip number one. Start where you are. Don't start where you think you should be. Second, with discipline. Second tip, be specific. So often in our world, we're really well-intentioned with our spiritual practices, but our lack of specificity prevents us from ever getting them off the ground. New Year's resolutions are a great example of this, right? We set great goals, and by February, they're gone. Be specific and manageable. For instance, don't say, I need to get more rest. It's ambiguous. Say, I'm in a Sabbath every Sunday. Set it in your calendar. Don't say, I need to pray more as a goal. Set a calendar appointment to pray. Don't say, I want to simplify my life. Use the simplicity audit we gave in the Transform Life to simplify. Actually go through it and be specific. Because when you're specific, these things can actually start to get integrated. And when you're not, they'll just remain far-off, ambiguous goals. That's the second tip about disciplines. Third tip about disciplines. Remember your personality. Every person in this room is gifted uniquely. And there are an abundance of uh, unique ways that we can connect with God. Introverts in this room? See, they don't want to raise their hand. Because, yeah, a couple, they're like, ah! No shame. It's good to be an introvert. God made you that way. It's okay. And there are introverted disciplines. There are ways that you can actually connect to God within your own personality. Extroverts in the room, they're like, yeah! Woo! There are extroverted ways to connect with God. Use your personality as a guide. Say, where can I connect with God? Maybe it's in nature for you. Maybe it's in art. Find a place that you can connect to the presence of God. And then, also, knowing your personality, don't let yourself get too comfortable, either. Introverts, don't just spend all your time alone. It's important for the introvert to be pushed a little bit and say, well, how do I learn from others? How do I embody living in community? And then for the extroverts, don't just always be around people. Sometimes the best thing, I'm an extrovert, sometimes the best thing for me is go be alone for like three hours. It's the best thing for me. And so choose diverse practices that can connect to your personality but also push you in good ways. And then finally, friends, fourth tip. Remember that in the disciplines, you're not earning anything. The disciplines are not about religious activity to earn favor or esteem before God. God already loves you, and nothing can change that. There's nothing you can do or not do to earn or unearn God's love. The disciplines are simply about receiving and abiding in the love of God that already exists for us, and then extending that to the world. We do this in response to God's love, not to earn it. And that's true of any healthy relationship, by the way. The time that I set aside to spend with Emily, I'm not consciously thinking, like, we're going to go on a date tonight somewhere. I'm not thinking, man, I better not screw this up or she's going to stop loving me. It's not what I think. Yeah. (laughs) It's not what I think. I set aside the time with Emily because I know she loves me and because I know I love her. And I know that the best thing for our love is to abide, to dwell. We might even drink tea. I don't know. (laughs) Our job is to receive God's love in Christ and then participate in the practices that cultivate a deeper receiving of that love in every fiber of our being and then extending it to the world. And a community that does this together, a group of people who abide in Jesus and allow Jesus to abide in them, will transform the world. Not just can, will. It's happened throughout history and it happens today. They will affect reality around them. 
Abiding in God means we'll become a place of rest and peace in a world that is defined by hurry and anxiety. We'll become a place of love and forgiveness in a world that is defined by anger and resentment and vitriol. We'll become people who are a place of service in a me-first world. We'll become people of joy who can extend that joy to others. So here, at Midtown, in this little amazing community, let's go deep. Let's dive in. Let's abide in Jesus. Because robust and full and free life is there waiting for us. Let's become the vehicle of his transformation, not just in our lives, but in the world around us. You guys, let's be dwellers together. Let's pray. 